My name is Harrison Wheeler, and this is the Technically Speaking Podcast. I sit down with BIPOC designers, entrepreneurs, and technologists. We discuss careers, triumphs, their resilience, and the why behind their decisions. Before we get started with the show, I just wanted to plug our Patreon. If you like what you're listening to and you want to support the podcast, for as low as $3, you can contribute monthly to help support the production of the show. You can contribute today by heading over to patreon.com slash technically speaking HW. I'll also include the link in the show notes. Regina Gilbert, designer and author of Inclusive Design for Digital World, joins the show to discuss her recent award, the James Weldon Johnson Professorship, and her work in the field of accessibility and inclusion in the XR space. She shares her journey into UX design and how she became interested in accessibility, as well as her current focus in spatial computing. She also gives us a hint into her upcoming book and the importance of considering accessibility from the start when building AR and VR experiences. Let's get into it. I have one of the original guests from the show, actually our second guest on the show, Reginae Gilbert, who is a designer and author of Inclusive Design for a Digital World, as well as a professor at the NYU Candon School of Engineering. Welcome back. Thanks, Harrison. Very happy to be back. I must say, for listeners that have been following the show for a while, you know that I've had a couple meetups and it was great to finally meet you in person. And it felt like we actually met before. Like it was yeah. pretty crazy because I think you first came on the show back. Obviously, we've been chatting before then, but the first time you came on the show was back in 2020 in the early pandemic days, right? I mean, right. before any vaccines, before when it was really scary. So we've been through it a little bit. We have been through it and we're still going through it. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I don't know if it's ever going to ever be done at this point. We shall see. Yeah. Look, I want to recognize you actually just won an award. It's called the James Weldon Johnson Professor. And I think it comes with $20,000 grant. Like, congrats. Maybe tell listeners yeah. about what that is. And I don't know. You don't have to tell us what you're going to do with the money, but. Oh, sure. How does it feel to win such a prestigious award? So I won. I had no idea this was even happening. I received an email from the provost saying, congratulations. I'm like, what? What is this? And I had a bad day. I mean, just talking about that day. I was like, oh, and I get this email that says, congratulations. You were nominated and selected by distinct faculty for this James Weldon Johnson professorship. And James Weldon Johnson, for those who don't know, was the first Black professor at NYU and also wrote the words to lift every voice, which some folks may not know is the Black national anthem. And so I was like, wait, what? And along with that, I will be a James Weldon Johnson professor for the next three years. I received $25,000 a year for my research. I was just, I had just been saying like, I need money for research and I'm going to have to apply for all these things. And I'm still going to apply for things because research is not cheap. And my research is in inclusion and accessibility in the XR space. And I've just been Mm -hmm. working slowly through what I need to be doing next. And so getting this award was 
Whew, I have to tell you, so my parents are both deceased. And when I read that email, I cried because I really wanted to tell them. I really yeah. did. And it really, so I, I couldn't tell them, obviously, but I called my brother and told them. Yeah. He was so yeah. excited. So yeah, it's an honor. I will do my best to uphold the James Weldon Johnson name, this professorship. I'm in great company because there's other folks from NYU that are a part of it, have received the award as well. So I am very excited and I am super grateful. Yeah. I'm proud of you. I don't know if that means anything. No, I appreciate it. But I know it means a lot. Also, just be recognized by your peers because, yeah, like they clearly regard you in, or they hold you in high regard. And that's yeah. amazing in itself. Yeah. And I think one of the things a lot of my students or people who are interested in getting into UX, what do I need to do? What do I need to do? And I say, do the work. Just keep doing the work. Yeah. And doing the work will get you the experience. It'll get you more work. Keep doing the work. When I, obviously I put myself out there, I do talks and stuff like that, Yeah. but I wasn't looking for this. I was doing the work and I didn't know people were talking about me in rooms. I had no idea yeah. because I'm just doing the work. Right. So that's, I think an important lesson. Like I took my own advice to just keep doing the work yeah. and I will continue to do the work as well. Yeah. I think like, even when we first spoke, I remember just reflecting on, as you wrote your first book. Right. I think you had the mindset that you didn't know it all. Right. It was also a learning process for you as you're moving forward. And we'll get into this in the show, but it's just been amazing to see just how you've also thought about like inclusion and accessibility from many different lenses. I can even remember you were with another guest on the show. We were talking about like spatial like audio or something like that around accessibility. And now we're talking about augmented reality, right? And yeah. so many of these new applications that are really on the forefront, at least in terms of technology. So it's really amazing to just see how you're progressing and even how you're learning and just sharing that knowledge with the world. Another thing we need to celebrate is, as you mentioned before the show, like it's the end of the year for you. Oh, uh -oh. yes. Okay. So do you, what are you going to, what is your, what is top of the list for you when, you know, an academic year is over for you? I wish the academic year is over. It's not <laughs> quite yet. We're just, this is the end of the first semester for the academic year. Yeah. So this is the 2022-2023 academic year. For me, I teach, I also do research, and I'm writing a book this semester. So that has been a very difficult task. I've been trying to juggle all things, and then my research just, I had to push it to the side a little bit so I could write. So over my winter break, I'm actually going to be writing because the book is due early next year. So I will be spending my time writing, but I won't have to teach. I won't have to come on campus, all of those things. So. I just look forward to wrapping up. I get to do grading, which yeah. is always delightful. And just reflecting on this past semester, again, we're still in this pandemic. I teach with a mask on in person to students. We lifted their, our mask mandate earlier in the semester because of the changes with COVID and less cases. And so it's been the past year and a half any educator has really been through it from teaching online then to getting back in the classroom. And we love our breaks. That's what I'll say. I cannot wait for just a little break. Yeah, you definitely deserve it. So what I want to do, this is like a, a tradition we've started since the first couple episodes, but I'm going to go into a few icebreakers. And the first icebreaker that I like to give to our guest is what is something that you are currently obessed with? Oh, my Peloton. Oh, my your Peloton. Peloton. Okay. Oh, yes. 
I actually just broke about, I had a, about a four month daily streak going and I just broke it on wow. over the weekend because I didn't, I usually meditate at yeah. minimum. And that day I just did not. And so it's like, Ooh. and then now it's like, you have a three day streak going. And I was like, I literally had hundreds of days. Yeah. And this week marked my 100th week of using the Peloton um, app consistently. So that is my obsession and I'll be going away for a little bit. I don't, there's a week or two where I don't get to use my bike and it's a bummer, but <laughs> I still use the Peloton app. I really am a huge fan of it. Who is and your obsessed. instructor? Who's your go-to instructor? Can I show you what some, one of my friends did for me? Oh, what? I did my 500th oh my ride. Wow. 500 rides is pretty amazing I, yeah pretty amazing so they made this for me and i was like i'm so proud of this i keep it right here so i could see it all the time did they send you a shirt <laughs> for the 500 rides or only just one no yeah when i got the bike the 100th thing they stopped doing that t-shirt thing Whoa. but my friend found me what yeah my friend found me a t-shirt at a secondhand store and sent it to me so i was very happy <laughs> so i still got a generational t-shirt now yeah <laughs> No, but I still have to ask, who is your favorite instructor? Who's your go-to? That's, well, for what class? Okay, so I could say for, like, bar, I like Hannah. Okay. For strength, I like Rad. Yeah. For cycling, it's hard because it depends on my mood. Shit. If I want to go hardcore, if I'm like, oh, I really want to challenge myself, I'll do a Robin, okay. Alex, or Tune Day. Tune Day is one of... I hit my PRs with her every time. She's Listen. smart. And my, probably the person that I ride with the most is Hannah in the UK. Yeah, Hannah's great. So, Hannah's great. Yeah, yeah. Hannah does like these like piercing glares. Wait, Hannah, I'm uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't, I feel like I would be friends with Hannah if, if we, yeah. yeah, I was like, oh, I'm going to London next May. Maybe I can take a Peloton class with yeah. The London studio. So yeah, yeah. I, eventually I would like to get in studio. And then for meditation, Dr. Chelsea hmm. and Ross are my go-tos. You have so I'm, roster. Oh, let me tell you. When I tell you, like I'm obsessed. I, on my Instagram, I only follow Peloton instructors. <laughs> yeah. Hey, it's a good balance. Yeah. You've yeah. got, that's for your Instagramming on Twitter. I love your Twitter, by the way. It's great. Oh, thank you. Like, I, like, I just talked to myself. <laughs> I love it. Considering like all of the other stuff that's going on, on Twitter, it's just very calming. Really great prompts. I'm like, huh, I didn't think about that before. Yeah, I don't know what's going to happen with Twitter, but it is still my go-to. I feel there's a, still a sense of community there. There's a lot of yeah. noise, but there's always a lot of noise. So. Anywhere. Let's just keep it moving. And if it crashes and burns, it crashes and burns. I'm going to crash and burn with it. I just, everybody was fleeing. And I said, I'm not going to flee. Where am I going to go? Where are you going to go to? I, where am I going to go? So I have two Instagram accounts. One sure. I never use. And yeah. one I just follow Peloton instructors. And yeah. so I don't engage really. I just see what they're doing. Twitter has been the only place where I've really engaged with people. I've gotten to yeah. know people in person. That's where I got to know you. And yeah, and I genuinely care <laughs> about yeah. some of the folks that I interact with yeah. there. And it's been, it's just been really, I've gone to have experiences that I would not have or gone places that I would not have gone if it weren't for Twitter. 
It's true. Look, okay, so to listeners, Reginae tweeted something that just, I feel like I was talking to my friends about this, but you were like, there are a few friends who, ca- who I can call like it's the 90s and I love it. But unfortunately nowadays, so much of our lives are scheduled and I felt that so much. Ugh, it's I have like, like five friends I could just call. And yeah. sometimes they take up, sometimes they won't. And then sometimes they call me back. For most people, it's what time are you free? Yeah. I don't Thursday, know. three weeks from now. Okay. I feel bad leaving voicemails now. They don't listen. Nobody listens to voicemails. No, no one does. No. It's sad. I'll start. <laughs> it's a lost start. All right. Yeah. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do one more icebreaker for you. All right. What is something that recently surprised you? Oh. What is something that recently surprised me? That is a very good question. I would say I have seen a lot of kindness here in New York City Mm. from strangers to strangers. And that has surprised me with all the negative things in the media. I have seen people be incredibly kind, helping people with strollers, go up the stairs, giving up their seats, just having fun conversations because they happen to have the same book it's i don't know if i'm looking for the kindness or i just see it because i need to see it but that has surprised me in recent weeks yeah i think it goes to show that there's probably a lot of kindness going on all the time i think there is like twitter a lot of noise yeah there's There's a lot lot of noise and there's a lot of kindness yeah and kindness is contagious it really is we forget that so is the opposite yeah I know that could be a whole other podcast episode. So look, I'd love for you to just give a bit of refresh yourself and just how you got into accessibility because the podcast has grown quite a bit since the first release. Yeah. I'm so, I, listen, I am very proud of you, Harrison, because I remember oh. when you started and you're like, oh, I'm going to do this thing. And I was like, that's great. And you asked me to be on the show. I said, sure, I'm a, I'm a fan. So it's like, yeah, I'll do it. And yeah. you have really turned this into something great. You built a community. You know, when we had the meetup here in Brooklyn, yeah, a couple of people I talked to were like, yeah, I listen to the podcast. Harrison's so awesome. And I was like, it just made me so happy for you that you had this idea. And out of this idea, you built a community. Yeah. You did that. <laughs> And yeah. I know how hard it is to accept when people talk about you, but please accept it. Oh, I will accept that. I'm tearing up a little bit, but <laughs> yeah, I guess people watching the video might see it. I appreciate those kind of words. And you've been along the whole journey, like legit been along that journey because yeah, I can remember I was just not, I didn't have a lot of confidence and we went straight on to Zoom. I think we had a few technical difficulties, but yeah, here we are today, like moving into the third year. Amazing. Wild. Congrats. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. All right. So we're going to put it back to you, though. Okay. It's oh. about you. It's about you. Okay. <laughs> so maybe take folks, give them a brief sort of history about your journey into sort of UX and then your focus on accessibility and ultimately teaching, right? And that's a big part yeah. of what you do. You're already in your second book, right? So yeah. give folks a, a brief kind of background there. Okay. So I will start with the beginning of my UX journey. I was working as a PM in the fashion world, product manager. I worked primarily in supply chain. So it's funny when people talk to me as if I don't know anything about business because I know quite a bit. 
Uh, quite a bit. I worked in the fashion industry for a very long time. I moved to New York in 2005. In 2006, I started my career in the fashion industry where I worked as a fashion designer for two years. I moved from being a fashion designer to an IT trainer. So I was a technology trainer, information technology trainer. And from IT trainer, I moved to a business analyst. From a business analyst, I moved to a project manager. During 2010, I became a certified project manager and a scrum master. So I was yeah. doing all the things. And then yeah. I worked in that space. But around 2013, I really was looking for a change. 2012, 2013, around there. I started asking around because I worked in internal systems within companies so that I was working in fashion, but on the IT side, nothing public facing. And I really wanted something different. So I started talking to people who were working in the digital realm. And they said, oh, you should take some classes. And so I did. I started taking a class. One of the first classes I remember taking was through NYU's professional studies program. Yeah. And it was a build your own website in three weekends. Wow. So it was like Dreamweaver. Yeah. <laughs> so it was basic HTML, CS, and JavaScript. And so I did. I built like a travel website because I love to travel. So I, yeah. I built this travel website. And then I started mm -hmm. taking other classes on digital marketing. And mm -hmm. that's when I got, I signed up for Twitter during that time because I took a social media class. I knew nothing about these worlds. Yeah. And so that led me to taking a UX course. And that UX course changed the direction of my life. I mm. left the PM world to pursue user experience design, and I became a freelance user experience designer doing some really cool like user research projects. Yeah. And what I found was that my previous experience really fed into UX design. Although I did not know the language of design, yeah, right. I did the same thing yep. as a business analyst and as a PM. And yeah. so oftentimes what I'll tell people when they're interested in switching to UX or design and they belittle the work that they've done before, I say, please don't do that no. because everything builds right yep. off of what you've done. Yeah. So about a year after I took my UX course, I actually became a teacher's assistant and then eventually instructor for UX. And that was around 2015. And that was also around the time that I started getting passionate about accessibility and went to my first meetup. And that first meetup changed everything, including me getting friends and who I'm still friends with. Two people in particular, Thomas Logan and Nefertiti Matos. Nefertiti really changed everything for me because Nefertiti is blind. And I, she asked me what I did for a living. And I said, I do UX design. She said, what's that? And I explained, I make things usable. And then she asked me a question that forever changed everything that I do. She asked me, do people like you, designers, think about people like me, people mm -hmm. who are blind? And when she asked that question, I sat and it felt like forever that I was yeah. silent because the answer was no, no, we don't. But I said, I promise you, whatever I work on, we will yeah. think about you. And that changed everything. Nefertiti has since gone on to, she does a lot of audio description work. Yeah. That, and I'm so proud of her. So if anybody watches the Netflix J-Lo documentary and you put on audio descriptions, that's my friend. Wow. That's Nefertiti. Yeah. So she's gone on to do really cool, cool stuff. 
since then, yeah. but she changed everything for that. That really changed my perspective on what could I do as a designer and who am I really thinking about mm. when I'm creating stuff? One thing that I really appreciate that story is that there's just so many pivots in there. And so I would almost have to ask you, like, maybe take us to like your mindset. Like, how were you feeling during this time? Were you uncertain? It seems like once you had that conversation with Nefertiti, like that's when you felt like that sense of conviction. But did you think like going down the UX path, did you think there was potentially another pivot after that? Was your mindset open to that? Yeah, I didn't really think at that point where I decided to switch into UX, I had lived my dream. And sure. I do want to talk about something that folks I don't think talk about often. Yeah. Which is what happens when you've done all the things that you wanted to do and you mm. forget how to dream. Yeah. Which is what happened to me, honestly. Mm. I feel like I came to New York. I wanted to be, I moved here for design school. I went to design school for a year. I dropped out. I became a fashion designer. That's what I came here for, right? I wanted to become a PM. I became a PM. I wanted to become a UX designer. I became a UX designer. All these things that I wanted to do, I had done. And yeah. so I never thought what happens next and how do I continue to dream? And yeah. part of that has been this through discovery of trying new things and seeing if I like them or not. I love photography. It was my dream to be a photographer when I was younger. Yeah. And so I'm going to take some photography classes, right? I There's things that I want to learn. That, so I just have continued to learn. And I think that we don't talk about that enough. I've done the things that I wanted to do. So now what? Yeah. Because the thing is, we're never done. No. We're never done. Say you reach the position you, you wanted. Okay, now what? Yeah. Say you're fine in the position you have and you don't want to move up. Okay, now what? We, yeah. we, I don't think we have those conversations. And just to finish, to say where I got to. So I was a UX designer. Yeah. I, I worked in e-commerce for a long time. I got laid off. After I got laid off, I decided to start my own business, Gilbert Consulting Group. That was really cool because I had some very cool clients under NDA, so can't say. But it was a lot of fun doing that. And during that time is when I began my career at NYU. I was an adjunct professor. I taught one class, one UX class. Yeah. And after about a year of teaching, a position opened up for a visiting professor. So a visiting professor is not a full-time faculty member. They're just somebody who's there for a year. And I got the job. And so I became, during the 2019-2020 academic year, yeah, which led into the pandemic, unfortunately, that's when I became a visiting faculty member. And after that year, I actually applied for a position to become a full-time contracted faculty member, and I got it. So that is where I am today. And I never thought in a million years this is where I would be. Yep. <laughs> but it is so delightful for me to help students achieve their dreams. So that's where I am now. Like now I get to help others. Yeah. I think one thing to really note, even like for the listeners, like so much can change. All this happened in less than a decade, right? Seriously. Oh, oh I forgot about the book I wrote. You yeah. got the <laughs> Exactly. 2018, got... I got a book deal. Exactly. So. I skip over that all the time in my head. Yeah. Look, it's okay. You've got a list so long of accomplishments you forget sometimes. That's why I'm here to remind you. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> wow. That's really an inspiring story. I think like going back on that topic of really accessibility, really since the last time we spoke, right, you had just released your book. And I think a lot of that was really focused really on digital experiences, like 
the web and whatnot in mobile. So now like you're focusing on something called spatial computing. Yes. And I think you're teaching, you're actually teaching a class on spatial computing. So yeah, maybe like for the listeners, could you maybe describe what that is? So spatial computing is just another way of talking about augmented reality and mm. virtual reality and also audio. So I think yeah. when folks think about AR, VR, we leave audio out a lot of times and right. audio spatial is a big part of experiences in general. And our definitions of AR and VR tend to be very siloed, but the reality of what virtual reality could be or augmented reality could be is a lot wider than we think. And sure. When I first got the job as a full-time faculty member, I was told that I need to do research. And I said, what am I going to research, you know? And I had thought about AR and VR. I'd just gotten into VR a few years ago, and I actually did some, I used to do usability testing for AR when I worked in a WeWork up in Harlem, because my, my the people who worked next to me did that. Yeah. And... I thought I'd like to use VR when I get older. So what does that mean? What's happening from an accessibility perspective? And so my grad assistant a few years ago, Saki Asakawa, and I put together a list of all the different tools that are used in AR and VR. And we looked at it from an accessibility and inclusion lens. So yeah. do these tools cost money? Right. Do you need certain software to run them? If people want to get into something, can they even get into it? So my, yeah. my thought was from the very beginning, if you're thinking about inclusion and accessibility in the AR and VR space, let's start with the tools. And so we ultimately, and I could send you a link to this, we created a subway map yeah. of all of the tools that are out there and what the use of the tools are. And Saki wrote a Medium article and it's out there in the world. It's not very, I don't think, people kept telling me, put it out there more. And I just never did because, you know, pandemic brain, yeah. we were all over the place. But that's where I started with looking into spatial computing and AR and VR. And back in 2019, I had the pleasure of being a designer in residence at Falling Water. And Falling Water is a Frank Lloyd Wright home in Pennsylvania. And that particular design residency is for folks who work in immersive. So folks who work in AR and VR. There yeah. were 10 of us who got to participate in that cohort of design residency. And that's where I met Doug Northcook. And Doug Northcook was one of the facilitators of this design residency and created the program. So Doug and I ended up becoming friends and working with each other on a, we co-designed a human-centered design course for where he yeah. used to work at Chatham University. And I told him, I'm thinking about writing another book around accessibility and AR and VR. And mm -hmm. then he said, oh, I have some ideas. And yeah. so we, in 2021, decided that we would put together a book proposal and we sent it off to academic publishers and Oxford University Press said yes. Wow. And so we have been working on the book this year. We will be finishing it up early next year and hopefully it'll be released by the end of 2023. And the title yeah. of the book is Human Spatial Computing. And it is a book about AR and VR. However, it is not focused on the tools because that can change. It is focused right. on the human aspect of AR and VR. So specifically looking at the mind, the body, human-computer interaction, privacy and ethics, affordances and immersive embodiment design. And so I also created a class this semester based on the content of the book. Yeah. So this semester, my students, they got to actually work on 
two very cool projects. I think they're cool. <laughs> you can ask them. I don't know. I have a colleague who works down in Peru and he teaches an art and technology class to undergraduate students. And I teach this human spatial computing class to graduate students. So we thought, how could we work together and collaborate? Yeah. And how can we get our students to work together? So we decided that his younger students, who are first-year students, would write a letter to their older selves. My grad students, who are a bit older, would write a letter to their younger selves. And everybody would take a survey about their hopes and their fears. And based on these letters that they wrote, because everybody, they were put in groups, based on the letters and the survey results, they had to create an art piece that would live in Mozilla Hubs, which is a web VR world, Yeah. for each other. Yeah. And it turned out really cool. I was very proud of what they created based off of what they got from these letters and the survey results. And so it's, he has, we had a total of what, 78 students yeah. who worked on this together. So it was, it was great. And then the other project I had the students do was speculative design using spatial computing. And it was thinking about a hundred years in the future. How can we have an impact on things like food deserts or healing generational trauma? Yeah. The productivity culture that we are so wrapped up in and mental health access. Yeah. Because I think one of the big things with this technology, all well and good to have games. Yeah. How can we actually use this technology to help people? Yeah. And really connect with our human side. Yeah. And all the while telling stories. Because that mm. was a big part of this class too, is storytelling. Yeah. So that's yeah. just a little bit about all of that. Yeah. I was going to ask you about the use cases. Those are, I think there's obviously a lot of potential sort of opportunities that AR VR provides. I was going to ask you that. I actually don't want to ask you that. Because I think we can probably, I feel like it's probably what you can put your mind to. There could probably be a case for it in AR, VR. But when it comes to building these experiences, right? Because I think that's really where accessibility really comes into play. And right. so is it like a high barrier entry? Is this something that you can just pick up and do? Maybe take us through. If you're building one of these experiences or if you're interested in building these experiences, is a technology there to easily get in? Because always think about it like back in the day, you didn't really have a ton of these coding programs. You were just going at it. <laughs> and hopefully yeah. it would work. So what is it like these days to start building experiences for those platforms? I think first and foremost, you have to think about building accessibility in from the very beginning, which oftentimes isn't taught to folks. In my class, everybody had to think about, could this be accessible or not? Yeah. So that means providing options. So in my class, students use Mozilla Hubs and they also learned Lens Studio, which is primarily for Snapchat. Yeah. And so they use that for, they also, some also use Snap, sorry, not Snap, Spark AR, which is used for Instagram. And so if you're thinking about making an experience that is visual and someone can't see it, then what are the other options that you can provide someone? And so it's really design as a way of thinking, right? So how are people thinking about making these things and then incorporating accessibility along the way? Yeah. And the yeah. tools, so a lot of the tools, if anybody is interested, I did a talk at Stanford earlier this year and I list, I give a lot of resources of things that tools that folks can use if they're looking to make their AR and VR experiences more accessible. Also, I should just put this up on my website at some point. Can include that in the show notes as well. We can follow. Okay. With the yeah, 
I think this is all super fascinating. Is there, what is the conversation around accessibility like? Is it pretty non-existent? Are there like, are you like the only one? Are you have a few people like? Okay. So I'm not the, thankfully more people yeah. are talking about accessibility, but we still have a long way to go. Yeah. There's wonderful organizations like XR Access, which is part of Cornell Tech, and mm -hmm. they have a symposium every year where they talk about accessibility in the extended reality space. So they're doing amazing work. There are so many individuals that are working on things, a lot of folks in universities working on things sure. as well. So the conversation is still happening. I do think it's shocking to me how many people don't know about accessibility still. Yeah. But it is something I feel that you have to continue learning about. You don't finish learning yeah. about accessibility ever, in part because things change. And one of the things that, that I think designers should consider is the fact that there are so many people with long COVID symptoms. And those long COVID symptoms are, that's a disability, right? And part of that can be inability to focus, right, on large amounts of information. So how are you designing for folks? And this long COVID we're seeing can last for years. I am yeah. somebody who was impacted by long COVID for the last, I would say, two and a half years. I was, now I'm starting to get some focus back. But I, for a very long time, had, I was not able to read wow. anything for too long. It was wild. I just mm. felt my brain was different. And now I'm seeing more and more research come out saying how much COVID changes your brain. And so it is, yeah, so we have to take into consideration this new world that we're in. Post the height of the pandemic, we're still in it, but there are a lot of things to consider as designers. Yeah. Hey, look, we'll close our conversation there. I know you're working on your book. What, do you know when that's going to release? It will release in 20, probably late 2023. Perfect. Yeah. I don't um, have an exact date. No, it's fine. We'll look forward to that. And then where can folks get in contact with you? Where can they follow you? As long as Twitter is still around, I'm at R-E-G underscore I-N-E. And I'm happy to connect with folks on LinkedIn as well. And you can visit my website, ReginaGilbert.com. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your experiences and having an insightful discussion around human spatial computing. Looking forward to the book and obviously looking forward to just keeping in touch. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. And this was great. That concludes the show. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That is a huge way to show your support and it really helps us reach more people and grow our following. By the way, we release a new episode every two weeks. But in the meantime, you can follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, or YouTube at Technically Speaking HW. Again, thanks so much, and I'll see you next time. This has been a production of Technically Speaking Media.